exciting funky music tells you that this is Kevin Bay and the That's All I Got podcast as I go through items from my blog from the past week just ramble on about stuff Let me get Audacity out of my way. And let's see. Get over to some of the posts. So it was a short week. We had Memorial Day on Monday. And the news on Monday. Was that Monday? I don't know. I blogged a lot on Monday. Let me check it out. Uh, Let's see. Monday was the... 31st, so Tuesday. I was t- <laughs> figuring a short week, I could tell what days are what. But everything runs together. So on Tuesday, June 1st, I don't know. I Every story that came across that I came across that day just bugged the living daylights out of me. And it started out with uh, something I never knew before, that Native Americans owned slaves. I had no idea. And uh, this came across, I came across a story in the Chicago Tribune. And it's because uh, Chicago, they want to do away with Columbus Day and move to Indigenous People Day, which so many other communities are doing these days. You know, Columbus is canceled, so he's no longer an explorer. He's just a guy that spreads disease and pestilence and rape and pillaging and genocide so they go with um indigenous people's day as if indigenous peoples are somehow better than human you know we we're all human we all have the same foibles some of us are nicer than others some of us are not you know and native americans you know, are no better than any of us. They're no more virtuous. They 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 weren't living in some uh, utopian society where it was all peace and love. They went to war with each other. They held, um, uh, or they they committed all kinds of atrocities against uh, each other. Just like every other human being has done throughout the history of mankind. But um, what I came across here is that in the Chicago Tribune. Um, as they say here, let's see, soon after the Civil War, the federal government ordered the five civilized tribes, which I'd never heard of before either. I don't expect they taught any of this in school. At least I don't remember it. So they ordered the five, what they called the five civilized civilized tribes, the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, Muscogee, and Seminole nations to recognize freedmen black people once enslaved by tribal citizens with citizenship rights. Though only the Cherokee Nation currently does, on Friday, leaders of the Choctaw and uh, Muscogee Nations announced they began considering a process to change their constitutions to grant citizenship to freedmen descendants. So, if you are a descendant of a Native American, one of those tribes, and a black person, uh, you are not free currently in those tribes, except for the Cherokee Nation. 
And uh, the other thing I didn't know is that Native American tribes, uh, some of them also sided with the Confederacy and fought along with the Confederacy so they could preserve slavery. Uh, their decision to decide, uh, to side with the Confederacy during the Civil War proved to be detrimental for them as well. Even just one year into the war, it became increasingly clear to the Native tribes that they had chosen the wrong side. In 1862, the Union launched a massive attack into Indian Territory. And, and uh, according to the website History of Yesterday, at the time of this attack, the Confederate-aligned uh, tribes were under the leadership of Cherokee Chief Stand Waite, or Waitee. I don't know how you pronounce his last name, W-A-A-T-I-E. This Cherokee chief was a proponent of slavery and owned slaves himself. He was also the only Native American to attain the rank of general in the Civil War. Did you know that there was a Native American that was a general in the Confederacy? Despite this achievement, like most of the Confederacy, Stand Waitee did not fare well. When the Union attacked Stand Waitee's men in 1863, they tried to hold their ground but were soon beaten back. Stand Waitee ended up being captured by Union troops, and the Union took control of all Indian territory by 1863. So, uh, and again, the reason I found out is because the Chicago City Council, they want to remove Columbus Day, replace it with Indigenous Peoples Day, and one of the council members is a descendant of a mixed Native American and African American uh, heritage, or has mixed Native American and African American heritage. And uh, he's against the proposal until the tribes officially recognize former slaves as full citizens of their respective nations. According to the Tribune, uh, this is what they say, the family history would become the impetus for Moore's, uh, what's his full name? I didn't even put that down. Uh, but he's a councilman, though. Uh, he's, a, and I think, an alderman. Uh, urgent speech during Monday Board of Commissioners Committee hearing regarding the bill to replace Christopher Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day, long in demand of Native American activists. Moore said while he does not agree with celebrating the divisive explorer, he wants to halt changing the paid holiday in Cook County until the remaining four of the five tribes grant freedmen their full rights. Moore said, quote, If we decide to move forward, then I have no choice. If we decide that it's more important that black freedmen lives do not matter, then I will have to urge a no vote. So I thought that was fascinating. Never knew. Uh, they never taught that in school, that uh, Native Americans held uh, African American or black slaves at the time. Uh, next story was the DHS. Uh, if you remember... Not that long ago now, there was a shooter in Santa Clara County, California that killed nine people at the Valley Transportation Authority. Uh, funny enough, and I don't know how many times we have to hear about the FBI or DHS seeing signs of a problem but ultimately doing nothing. And meanwhile, they spend their time in forums and uh, uh, other places online where they find people that probably wouldn't do anything. Um, they're just like big talkers online. And they, they dupe them, they entrap them into buying fake explosives or, you know, they, that's, that's, those are the ones that they, they give them a backpack where they tell them it's full of explosives, they throw it in a garbage can, they give them a fake cell phone that doesn't do anything. As soon as they hit the send button, then the FBI swoops in. You know, somebody who probably would have just 
yammered on online and, and maybe done nothing. In this case, uh, U.S. customer uh, customers, U.S. customs officers who detained this person uh, in 2016 on his return from the Philippines, they found books about terrorism and fear. I don't know what a book of fear is or a book on fear, as well as a memo book filled with notes about how much he hated the Valley Transportation Authority. But he was let go, which, fine. I mean, so what, you got some books on terrorism and fear. Uh, there's no law against having books on those things. Uh, but having the handwritten notes about how much you hate where you work, you know, maybe there was something there that they could have put together. But he was let go, and the DHS uh, did create a memo on him, but they did not share it with local authorities. You know, while it's not illegal to research any of these things, to maybe maybe it's just a fascination terrorism. You know, every ever since nine eleven, terrorism is always on everybody's mind, and now with people talking about stupid uh, domestic terrorism, which they like to call, in other words, Republicans or Trump voters. Uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with looking these things up and gaining some knowledge about about what some of these things are, but. You know, if if in fact it was enough to flag DHS where they wrote a memo about this, perhaps it should have been shared with the local authorities where he lived, and then maybe you know they could have just kept tabs on him. Maybe you know send somebody over to interview him just to make sure he wasn't doing something stupid. I'm not saying that they should have detained him, arrested him, or do do anything like that because nobody you're not going to know at the time. But at least um, you know maybe some of this could have been prevented. And maybe they would be better off spending their time on people who are uh, actively doing something rather than people who are just in online forums, you know, really just flapping their yaps. Uh, Illinois. Illinois, my, my home state, state where I was born, uh, they've got an increase in tourism. You would think that's a good thing, except that the tourism increase is in uh, abortion tourism. Uh, according to, let's see, on MSN News, where I found the story, 46,500 pregnancies were terminated in, in Illinois in 2019 compared with 42,400 in 2018, according to state health department figures. While the majority of the women resided in Illinois, more than 7,500 came from other states to have an abortion in Illinois, 16% of all terminated pregnancies that year. This is roughly 2,000 more out-of-state women compared to 2018 when they comprised about 13% of all abortions nationwide. So, if economic activity is not Illinois' forte, unless, of course, you're trying to kill unborn babies. Now, again, I have to say this because I will get accused of all kinds of crap. I am not anti-abortion. I'm not, uh, I don't pretend to be uh, all-knowing and all-seeing. I am not omniscient. I don't know when life begins, you know, but I would like to see Congress and the people get together and let's decide some kind of consensus on when we consider as a nation that life begins. So we can set some type of a limit as to when abortions are allowed and when they're not. Because deciding things in a vague manner 
through the Supreme Court is not the way to go. And that's why the abortion debate has been the third rail of politics since Roe v. Wade. You know, I'm not all for, you know, women having pregnancies they don't want to have. Of course, you know, I, I don't think the majority of abortions are due to rape and incest. You know, I believe the majority of abortions are due to people who are being irresponsible. You know, and this is, this is 2021. Sex education happens in school in like the fourth or fifth grade or something now. You know, and sometimes even before that. So if you don't know now, by the time, you know, you're old enough to get pregnant. Now, you might not be emotionally or mature, you know, have the maturity uh, to not to to avoid getting pregnant when you have sex consensually, okay, and that that even goes for preteens and teens. But um, since they teach this stuff so early in school now, just about everybody should know you're gonna have if you're gonna have sex, you risk getting pregnant. So I think in, in order to you know, slow down or stop or the unnecessary, the, just the unnecessary killing of, of new life. I think we need to get together as a country and talk about when do we consider life truly beginning? You know, now some of the laws that are being passed, like in, I think it was maybe Texas, Alabama, Mississippi, something like that. I think it may be here in Georgia too. These heartbeat bills, you know, maybe those are a little bit too early because a baby's heart starts beating so early in the pregnancy that, you know, it's it's not really a viable fetus at that point in time either, or a viable baby. You could not pull the baby from the womb at that point in time and bring it to term. The fact that the heart is beating means that something is living, but is it living according to standards that, that our society wants to consider? And this is supposed to be why we have elected representatives, to to go through these things and talk about them and make policy that we can all live with. Not that we'll all be happy with, but that we can all live with. And then if it becomes law, then the Supreme Court won't have anything to say because the abortion and when life begins does not exist in the Constitution. Uh, let's see, moving on. Oh, there was a funny story about uh, Spain. Spain came out with some stamps, and their purpose was to highlight, uh, how do you say it? Um, it was so misguided that it was, it's just silly. Anyway, the stamps range from black to sort of beige, in color, and they were just solid colors, and the black ones were less expensive, and the lighter colored stamps were more expensive. And the intent, I guess, is to show the inequities in skin color and discrimination, when all they ended up doing was uh, illustrating, or they didn't illustrate it, but they... the. They put forth the idea that black people are worth less by making the black stamp cheaper. And I think their intent was more or less that, okay, if... Actually, I don't even know how you do that. Because it's not like if you were lighter skinned that you couldn't buy the black stamp. You know, 
it'd be different if like they matched up the stamp color to your face and say, okay, this is this is the only stamp you can buy. So if you've got a light if you've got lighter skin, you're forced to pay more. If you've got darker skin, you pay less. At least then maybe there would have been some kind of excuse for what they did. It still would have been funny. But it's just when when uh you know kind of woke policies go wrong. Anyway, it was just interesting, you know, I, I don't I don't know what people are doing. I really don't. Oh, here's one that really ticked me off to no end. In the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, there's a woman, Jennifer Y2. Uh, she gives her middle initial Y. I, I think she is uh, a woman who probably needs some therapy. She's finding insult in everything. It was an opinion piece in the Atlanta Journal, and it was called What Fuels Anti-Asian Hate? Um, if, you know, I'm half Asian. I'm half white, half Asian. And if I was 100% white and I knew her, I would never talk to this woman again because she is racist. She's racist against white people. And yes, you can be racist against white people. Um, you know, racism is racism, regardless of um, which race you're attacking. Here's from her, from her opinion piece. She says, let me share a very ordinary example of racial gaslighting. This is like the new buzzword, racial gaslighting. She goes on, a few weeks ago, I was venting to a couple of friends. I told them how someone had uh, said an anti-Asian slur and shut up, bitch, while I was speaking in a Zoom webinar the day before. Then I recounted an incident when I had shared a sticky rice dessert with a medical school classmate, who then said, the inside is great, but the outside is like snot. I told my friends how since then I could not help but wish that classmate ill. Think about that statement for a moment. This person gives his opinion on how a dessert tastes, and now she hates the person. She wishes him ill. Now, what does she mean by that? I wish him ill. She wishes him dead. She wishes him harm in some form or fashion. I mean, she wishes him ill. She goes on to say, It was a classic... A classic example of a person of color. I, I don't really know when Asians became people of color. Anyway, a person of color experiencing a microaggression and venting to let her friends about it. Venting to her friends about it. Sorry, I misread that. Except it led to, parentheses, what I only later realized, and parentheses, was racial gaslighting. One of my friends cut me off and said, don't you think you're being passive-aggressive? He said it was like snot, not it was snot. I don't even care if he said it was snot. And I'm sorry, that's me talking now. Um, racial gaslighting, wow. Um, she says, he wasn't being ironic, he was taking a moral high ground, first dismissing the comment and breezing over how it was a microaggression, and second, saying I was being passive-aggressive. Her attitude is just, is, it's aggressive-aggressive. There's nothing passive-aggressive about it, really. But it, 
if you're immature enough to have a discussion about a dessert and allowing other people to have an opinion on that dessert, if she's a medical schooler, she should not be licensed. I, I forgot what she is. Um, let me pull that up. What is she? Let me see if they put it in here. Jennifer, she's got a beautiful smiling face in this thing. She is a theology, medicine, and culture fellow at Duke Divinity School. So I take it from there that she's religious. Turn the other cheek, why don't you? She's a second-generation Chinese-American born and raised in New Orleans, so she's an American. And she currently serves as the coordinator of the United Chinese Americans Youth Mental Health Collaborative. Wow. She's, uh, she's the one that needs some therapy. She, uh, if you cannot handle somebody saying something like that about a rice dessert, you got deeper issues, and I don't think you should be advising anybody about mental health issues. Ah, to the Biden administration. Um, there was some short blurb in the Financial Post about us buying 1.033 million barrels of oil from Iran. It was such a short blurb, I, I didn't know what to make of it. I just blogged it anyways. Um, and, you know, my comment was, I guess it's less transparent than when President Obama just gave, flat out gave them pallets of cash. But why the hell are we buying oil from Iran? It's a question, and I only saw that blurb, and I, I didn't see anything else anywhere throughout the week, so I don't think anybody asked any further questions about it. Oh, let me close this woman's crazy opinion. Uh, okay, I came across a new acronym, MAPS. I had no idea what this was, and where did I see this? Oh, it was a, it was a uh, Twitter post by somebody named, her Twitter handle is Eliza Blue, E-L-I-Z-A-B-L-E-U. And according to her bio, she is a survivor of human trafficking, so she has some standing in what she's saying. She tweeted a couple of things, uh, a couple of screenshots of something, where, let me see. Um, she's saying that people, she saved, um, it, it was tweets on Twitter, and she said that she went and saved everybody who liked the tweets from these accounts, and she says if you see tweets of, the, of this nature, they're in violation of Twitter's terms of service and should be treated as such an... Uh, they should be uh, kicked off the service. One of the tweets that I have had consenting relationships with minors before were before where both parties were happy in engaging with sexual activity. I'm 27 and he's 15. So then I move on to the next screenshot. And that one says, this post is so refreshing, I finally garnered the strength to also admit that I'm a map. I'm like, map? What the hell's a map? Uh, the tweet goes on to say, I've been in a relationship with a 12-year-old, and next month he's turning 13. Thank you for this inspiring post. My 12-year-old Connor is the love of my life. Hashtag maps are valid with a rainbow flag. So I went and looked this up, because I had no idea what a map was. And then lo and behold, I find it's just another term for pedophiles. What is wrong with us? What is, what is wrong with people? Uh, let's see, from the website 
Welcome connections. Here's how they define it. Maps. Minor attracted persons are individuals whose sexual and romantic orientations often draw them to underage people, aka pedophile. Minor attraction is an orientation which is not chosen and often makes itself known during adolescence. Well, if you're an adolescent and you're attracted to an adolescent, that's called normal. But if you're an adult, I'm not talking about 18, 19 years old, dating a 15, 16 year old, you know, there's a lot of gray area there, but I'm talking about a 30 year old and a 15 year old. That's a different story. It goes on to describe this. Maps are not universally defined by their attractions any more than others are, but others often fail to see the person behind the attraction. The in, these individuals are often left to navigate their growing attractions alone, which can lead to isolation, negative self-talk, and many associated mental health challenges, i.e. depression, suicidal ideation, and anxiety. If you have these feelings, you need to seek help right away. Don't try to justify it. Don't try to call yourself a map. Don't try to have your own freaking flag because it is not right. You are preying upon young people who don't have the capacity to make decisions for themselves. And you've got a problem. I, I just couldn't believe that there was somebody's trying to soften the image of pedophiles. You know, I think enough is enough and we need to be able to draw a line there someplace some we have to draw a line somewhere there you know not everything can be a shade of gray oh and then uh, let's see tying to the iran oil purchasing uh, from the Wall Street Journal, the Biden administration suspended oil leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska, the latest move in its effort to block plans to begin the first ever drilling program in the pristine 19 million acre wilderness. The Interior Department said on Tuesday that the program will be on hold until it completes a comprehensive analysis under the National Environmental Policy Act, which means it will never come to fruition. Comprehensive analysis means 10 years, 20 years of study where they'll spend millions perhaps billions of dollars and nothing will happen and that's why i said perhaps this is why we're buying oil from iran because we've put a stop to everything they stopped the keystone pipeline um they've stopped drilling uh in other uh, or they've restricted fracking on federal land and now uh suspending oil licenses so say hello to your higher gasoline prices they're really trying to shove the electricity you know right up our asses Let's see here. <clears throat> Another story out of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, let's see. California. Is this California again? <laughs> yes, this is... Uh, uh, let's see. You figure I would know what the hell I'm doing with my own blog. Well, let me just, let me just read it because I don't really remember now. Uh, my, my title was the oh, this Wall Street Journal op-ed makes a boner out of a flaccid penis. So I say, I don't see what could possibly go wrong. I mean, women are women, right? If they identify as women, they're women. Why are we judging this? Look at the bright side. It cuts down on the need for conjugal visits. Will the taxpayers have to foot the bill for prison nurseries? Not for plants, you know, but for babies, If in case it wasn't obvious enough. Uh... So from the journal, they say here, take SB 132, which took effect in January. I guess this is a national law. Let's see. Now, let me continue reading it. Oh, no. Congress 
is trying to pass the Equality Act. So I guess this is a California law. It took effect in January, allows transgendered-identified male state prison inmates to transfer into women's prisons based on individual preference. No hormones, surgery, or time spent living as the opposite sex required. Uh, so you will have physically intact males who identify as females going into female prisons. And if Congress passes the Equality Act, which the House already has, incarcerated biological men um, who identify as female would be entitled to transfer into women's federal prisons and possibly also state prisons nationwide. Uh, this is also, uh, this is in the Wall Street Journal, and according to them, uh, how's that working in California? They say not well. According to Amy Ichikawa, who was released in 2013 from the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, where she served five years for assault and kidnapping. Miss uh, Ichikawa is now forming a nonprofit to help currently incarcerated women. Uh, this, the op-ed writer visited her home in Torrance, and she put her in touch with uh, she put him in touch with uh, four other and current former and uh, current and former inmates. Uh, okay, and yeah, that go, I, that goes on to spew some nonsense that I didn't even mean to <laughs> to quote. So anyway, uh, this is going to be trouble when you know first how many women are in prison who are sufferers of some sort of abuse. And if you're going to put biological men, men who still have everything intact, in prison with women, even though they identify as women, hopefully nothing bad happens, but you can just see a rash of babies coming out of federal prison. Uh, I don't know if there's a, an abortion program there, but there probably is going to have to be. It's a weird story, and I don't, I, I just really don't know what to do with it. Oh, uh, this podcast is brought to you by my merch store. Just go to kevinbay.com slash, kevinbay.com slash merch. I am the worst promoter uh, in the history of promotion. My name is spelled Kevin Bay. The last name is spelled B as in boy, A-E. So if you go to kevinbay.com slash merch, you'll see I've got some t-shirts that I designed mainly because I moved from Chicago to Georgia the Atlanta area. And it's a lot hotter here than it is up in Chicago. So I went from wearing mostly sweatshirts and long, long sleeve shirts to now these, the t-shirt and jeans lifestyle. And I don't like spending a lot of money on clothes. The t-shirts I'm wearing right now, they're all like four or six bucks or something from Hanes. And they're, they're not really the type that you want to wear on the outside. Let's put it that way. I do it anyway now. Um, but mostly I would wear these underneath a sweatshirt or another long sleeve shirt, you know, up in Chicago when it's, when it's cold. It just provides that extra layer of insulation. So now, you know, I don't have anything. And I, I don't want to look like uh, like I'm homeless or, uh, you know, running out of money. I'm not yet, at least. So I decided, okay, I don't really like t-shirts that much. And I don't like most t-shirt designs. So I figured, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to design some shirts that I would want to wear, and then I'll just throw them up. On, I'll use one of those uh, T-shirt um, sites that were, you know, custom T-shirt sites where you can make your own T-shirts. So the, uh, the first one I made was actually 60647. It's, 
it's my it's the zip code that I was born in in Chicago in Logan Square. So all I did was I spilled I spelled it out six oh six four seven and then uh, six oh six is on the top four seven is on the bottom and I've got four uh, red stars in between the two and that those represent the uh, stars on the Chicago flag. So at least I think if I come up with a other Chicago themed t-shirts i'm going to use those four stars someplace just to represent there so the, the second shirt i made was it's called elston western and diversity um the, the i grew up on elston avenue in chicago and right right off the corner there there's uh, three streets that meet elston western and diversity avenue over on the north side and my, my block was on elston avenue so um I, the t-shirt i made is the Names of the streets are in the exact same configuration uh, that the streets are themselves. So Western is a north-south street, and that one just goes straight across the chest. Diversity is an east-west street, so that one goes straight up and down. And Elston is a diagonal street that goes um, northwest, northwest to southeast. So that one is diagonal straight across. And I've got the little four red-starred uh, Chicago stars uh, in between all three all three streets. So those I just ordered for myself. Um, and if anybody wants them, you can go buy them, kevinbay.com slash merch. Um, if you do, I make a few bucks. And that helps me out because this is this is the only job I have right now, <laughs> which is hilarious. Um, I also have the, uh, the name of my podcast t-shirt, That's All I Got. And it's written in the same or similar font of the Looney Tunes, That's All Folks which is, that's how I came up with that whole thing. That's, that's all, folks. That's all I got to, you know, clever. Uh, let's see. We move on to Delta Airlines. Did you know that you and I, we paid for Delta Airlines restructuring? According to the Atlanta Journal, where I saw this, this story, uh, Delta received $5.6 billion in federal aid from the CARES Act last year. They also got $3.3 billion from the second round of relief funding this year and $3.1 billion from the American Rescue Plan, which included some federal loans. Uh, you know, what did they use the money for? They didn't use the money to just stay in business, to keep their business going as they were. Instead, you know, and I suspected this from the moment that all the airlines had to cease operations because nobody was flying the federal government shut shut them down and the next thing you knew they were announcing that they were going to have to lay off people which was going to be expected anyway but then they just started cutting routes they started cutting routes left and right and you can see okay um the if you look at how airlines normally travel or how they normally distribute flights through their kind of hub and and spoke system that it seems kind of inefficient you know, many times you'll have planes that fly around empty just because they have to get back to someplace. So I think at this point in time, it's, they looked at it and said, okay, nobody's flying. So we can, we can take this time to cut out the routes that really aren't performing. You know, keep the major routes going because that'll just keep money flowing in. But now they can, they can reimagine how they get to the smaller airports, maybe even cut them out altogether once people get used to not traveling. You know, because the, the smaller routes are not profitable. And that's, I think that's also why they, they kept going with these smaller uh, regional carriers. You know, they fly under the Delta name or the United name or the American name. 
uh, but they're really, they're, they're like a subcontractor. You know, when you look at your tickets, you can see that it's actually you're flying some other regional airline, not really Delta. It's like a, it's like private labeling almost. So, you know, they, they, they took that opportunity uh, to just restructure everything. And uh, they didn't use the bailout money just to stay in business. No, they, they, they got rid of old employees. And I'm not talking about old employees like they've just been around a little while. No, elderly. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to call them elderly. I'm, I'm uh, 50. How old am I now? Jeez, I can't even remember. Um, I'm, I'm 54 right? <laughs> I can't even remember. 1966, I'm 54. I'll turn 55 in November. So, uh, you know, when you, when you get on, on airlines in the United States, most of the flight attendants and gate agents, you know, they're my age, they're older. So many times too, they're not all that pleasant, I think, because they've been working in the business too long. But Delta took this opportunity to issue buyouts uh, and early retirements, and they cut their workforce by 18,000 people. You know, not only did they do that, though, they, they uh, what is the quote that the guy used? Uh, I have it here. I for, you know I should I should always give their names and context, but I I just take the quote really quick from the newspapers. Uh, what he said was this, this person's last name is Bastion, so I can't remember what his position is with Delta. He may have been the CEO, I don't remember. But he said the early retirements have given a lot of younger people opportunities to step up. We have a younger team going forward, and we're getting the juniority benefits. Junior or junior, I can't even say it. Juniority, it's supposed to be the opposite of seniority. I had never heard anybody use that. I don't even know if it's a real word, but I've, I've never heard that used before. In other words, they're getting rid of the old people, keeping the young people, and I'm surprised that there aren't lawsuits already being launched for them being ageist. So, what else did they do? Not only did they cut people, uh, they also fully funded their pension plan. The airline used some of its funds to make payments into its pension funds, allowing it to fully fund the plan. Delta's, Delta does not expect to have to make any further contributions to the plan in the future. So they fully funded it all the way through to the end, it seems, on taxpayer dollars. They also restructured vendors. Companies also cut costs by replacing smaller, older planes with larger, newer, more fuel-efficient planes and by restructuring how it handles staffing and uses contractors. So they dumped their caterer, Gate Gourmet, and they went with other companies, including New Rest, Mainline Aviation, and Sky Cafe US. I, you know, other than the, the, the stories that I read in the Wall Street Journal and the Atlanta Journal, I haven't seen this covered anywhere else, nor have I seen anybody being pissed off about it. Uh, this is like the bank bailouts all over again, except, uh, you know, there's no fraud. It's just that, okay, government was offering them money, so they took it. If I was a business, I'd do the same thing. But should taxpayers really be funding the restructuring of airlines? I don't think so. At least they should start handing out free sandwiches to us all when we fly. Now, to me, the biggest story is a two-and-a-half-hour video 
posted by uh, Dr. Brett Weinstein, or Weinstein, sorry, and Dr. Pierre Corey. And this is about ivermectin and COVID-19 patients. And it's still up on YouTube, which I'm shocked. Uh, um, but Dr. Um, Corey is the one I've been following. He, he gave testimony in front of the Senate about ivermectin and about how he believes that it's a drug that can uh, defeat COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2 and the illness of COVID-19. And this two-and-a-half-hour interview and back-and-forth, really, between these two doctors, they go through ivermectin, how effective it is, how cheap it is, how our public health authorities have failed the United States, how the silencing of doctors like themselves uh, is something that they've never seen before. It, it's, it, it was really enlightening and disgusting all at the same time. Here, let's uh, give you a little introduction to who they are. Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. I am Dr. Brett Weinstein. I am sitting Weinstein. with Dr. Pierre Corey, who is the president and chief medical officer of the FLCCC, which is the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. He is also a lung specialist and an ICU specialist. Welcome, Dr. Corey. He's a leader in his field. Well-known, not a crackpot, not a crank, uh, not somebody from the outside. He's well-respected and a practicing physician. Unlike fucking Fauci. So, you know, I went through, there's so, it's, this thing is so chocked full of information. And let's see, I just want to get into an, ex, an explanation of what ivermectin is. And here they give it to you. Let's talk a little bit about the evidence. What is ivermectin? Can you... So ivermectin, right, is it's um, one of the most this common Dr. medicines in the world. It actually works against parasites, right? So worms, different parasitic diseases that affect humans and animals. So it's a very um, common medicine given to animals. <clears throat> and it also won the Nobel Prize because it essentially transformed the health status of huge portions of the globe. So there's a lot of continents where parasitic diseases were endemic and, I mean, absolutely were decimated the health status of really low- and middle-income countries. Uh, one of them is a, a disease called onchocerciasis or river blindness. Mm -hmm. It literally causes blindness. And there were some uh, populations in Africa, some societies where... I'm letting like it run because it, of the it gives a good explanation. 40 were blind. So you had like villages where like all the people were blind. And here comes ivermectin known to be this, uh, you know, really effective antibiotic, and it basically eradicated the disease. And so it's been used now for 40 years, 4 billion doses. 40 years, 40 years, 4 billion doses. And, uh, you know, all we've been hearing is that this thing is dangerous, it's going to kill you. Uh, the WHO has uh, administered mass distribution programs to many of those areas. And so um, for that reason, it's one of the, the greatest um, feats of a medicine in History, well, you know, maybe on the part, not, not maybe not as big as penicillin. That's the you know one of the biggest the discoveries, yep. but literally it's on that shelf, right? It so there you go, ivermectin, safe, effective. It's one of the great medical finds uh, um, in history. Uh, so let's move on to ivermectin. 
uh, effectiveness. Let me see here. I've got it here. Okay. There's another character in the story besides Paul. There's a man named Juan Chimie. And he's actually a business data analyst. And he's from South America. And he, starting back in June, he'd heard from friends in Colombia that they were using ivermectin. They said, this stuff works. And so he'd heard, like, on, just on the ground that, like, People who were taking ivermectin just did really well, and they weren't getting sick, and it seemed to be effective. And he started looking at all publicly available databases in different regions, and he started to notice a pattern. And he has been posting and publishing these graphs for a year now, and they all show reproducible benefits on a, at a population-based level whenever ivermectin is adopted. No, they're not random controlled trials as everybody wants to have. But this is actual clinical experience of people administering the drug. The guidelines or used in a city or region. And so we're, we have masses of evidence showing that it's working epidemiologically on that kind of data. And his paper, <clears throat> which he wrote with a couple other experts, it's now in peer review, but I think it's a historic landmark paper. And what they did is they showed that, uh, that uh, the relationship of the states in Peru, the distribution of ivermectin, and what happened to the case counts and deaths. And they very carefully ruled out all the other confounders, like lockdowns and mobility and mask wearing and everything. They show you there's nothing else to explain those precipitous drops but ivermectin. I think that paper, and, and so what's interesting is Paul identified it. I fell in behind Paul. I started looking at all the clinical evidence. And then one day, I found Juan Chimie's paper on a preprint server. And I literally, I think there was goosebumps going through me because I'm looking at this paper. Sorry, I'm letting this go And on, I already knew that this was it's probably important. a gangbuster of medicine. But I saw the paper showing, like, that it's actually working on a population-based level in Peru. And, like, I called Paul. And I'm like, Paul, I just sent you this paper. You got to look at it. And, you know, and Paul was Paul was not as surprised me because I think Paul or Paul knows everything. He already knew Something that about Paul Merrick. Was, but I thought it was really can't remember important who he is. because this was like the – there's no better evidence that, you know, never mind randomized controlled trials. <laughs> like, you're seeing, like, thousands upon thousands of, of people, like, not dying in society. Amazing. But yet all this stuff is ignored. Uh, so here we are. Let's see. Let me go on here to see when uh, Dr. Corey discovered this and was coming across all of this. He thought that they had the magic, the magic bullet. You saw this happening at every scale. It's so I also say the man that I was back in October, and we already struggled getting our message out of, of effective treatment protocols. Um, but I never could have imagined this. I, I'll tell you how naive I was. And what, by the way, I borrowed your phrase the other day. Uh, what is it? No matter how cynical I get, it turns out I'm naive. Yes. Or something. No matter how cynical you get, you're still being naive. You're still being naive. Yeah. So, so I have learned that lesson. I keep learning that lesson. This is a doctor with over 30 years of experience with this stuff. And how naive I am. But let me let me tell you how naive I was when I posted our preprint November 13th. I literally thought the pandemic was over. Right. <laughs> posted it. It's there. We showed we showed the basic science level. We showed multiple clinical trials. We showed the epidemiologic effects. Like everything was there to show that this is a a 
this is an intervention on the par of vaccines that could literally extinguish the pandemic. So what's interesting here, too, is that under emergency use authorization, as far as I understand it, if there's an effective treatment for the disease, a vaccine cannot be approved. And, you know, perhaps this is why fucking Fauci uh, has been poo-pooing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine because he does not want there to be an effective treatment. And by what these two doctors are saying, specifically Dr. Corey, is that ivermectin is essentially an, a very effective treatment not only for, you know, for when you have first symptoms of COVID, but also when uh, you have long-haul COVID. And he, he does get into that later on. But there you go. I mean, this is a guy with, with a lot of experience, and uh, he's just flabbergasted that he thought he had all the evidence there, but yet he couldn't get any traction. Nobody wanted to listen. Nobody. And I think here he is talking about that. But I, I thought it was a data argument. And so, right. like, I kept trying to argue data. I would say, but, you know, meta-analyses are stronger than any big trial. You don't need a big trial. You know, and so I would have these data arguments. But it's not about the data. Yeah. It, there's something else. There's that thing. There's the gravity. There's that thing that we can see and feel out there that is just squashing, distorting, suppressing the the efficacy of ivermectin. And so there you go, not following the data. So much for following the science as we keep hearing. Follow the fucking science. Follow the science, but nobody's following the goddamn science. Let's see now. Okay, here we go. When you say this could end the pandemic, so I have a, um, a friend online who's done a very good analysis, which uh, is on my Twitter feed if people want to look for it. <clears throat> a data analysis uh, analyst from Brazil. And he is very supportive. He agrees completely that ivermectin is a very important potential treatment for COVID and that we should be using it. And he quotes a chapter and verse. He says that it is overreaching to imagine this could end the pandemic. Now, I think he's incorrect, and I think I know why he's incorrect. He's obviously an honest broker. But I think he's being too cautious. But I would like to hear you. You've just said you think it could end the pandemic. Why do you say that? Well, I, my guess, and first I want to guess why he said that. Maybe because just based on the trial's evidence, he doesn't see it as being as effective as it could be. But uh, a couple of reasons why I think he's underestimating its power is that the trials really can't capture the efficacy perfectly because trials generally don't start day one. Yeah, this is important because this is when he gets to, into the difference between a randomized controlled trial versus clinical experience. Right. So the randomized controlled trials, by the time you identify, have symptoms, test, enroll, consent, and begin treat, you're just talking about days. Right. What we know in clinical experience is that you treat upon first symptoms, almost everyone gets better very, very quickly. How disgusting is that? You know, upon first symptoms... Nearly every single person gets better. So, so, say, so that, say that again slowly. If you treat COVID-19 patients on first symptoms with ivermectin, almost everybody gets better quickly. Is that what Clearly. You're, I, I see it in my own clinical experience. 
and and beyond like so we talk about all the buckets of data right so you have the randomized controlled trials the observational controlled trials which everyone likes to dismiss because they're too fraught with um, i don't know uh, inaccuracies which is false but i try to recommend remind everyone that randomized and observational around this both match each other in fact there are times where the randomized controlled trials show bigger effects than the observational we have randomized you have observational you have case series you have epidemiologic analyses and then the clinical experience of doctors you can't find a doctor who has incorporated ivermectin into their treatments who will come back and say, my patients didn't get better. You can't find that doctor. I'm still looking for that doctor. Right. Okay. Anyone who starts to use it, what I found with the first few times I use it is that generally, almost always, within 24 hours of starting it, some mitigation of one important symptom started to go away. Even when you give it to them. Look at that. Within 24 hours. I don't know. This whole, this whole thing was so infuriating even to listen to that these guys cannot get on any mainstream uh, legacy news outlet. You're not going to see them on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, CNN. Did I say CNN? MSNBC. It's really quite disgusting. Now, they get into the cost of ivermectin, and this probably tells you exactly why uh, they're not able to get traction. I hope this isn't too much inside baseball, but... In order to understand an impossible-to-understand story like this, you need to weigh in somewhere. This is a couple of facts as I understand them. The cost this is Dr. for a treatment of <clears throat> ivermectin is... Negligible. It's like... A f it's, I've seen the range from 3 to 12 bucks. Yeah. Right? 3 to 12 bucks. Yeah. Uh, for remdesivir, a new drug still very much under patent, still very much paying the bills for its development, $3,000 a treatment? 3000 Okay, so... There you go. Financial interest. No, you know, nobody's, nobody wants to believe that anybody wants to profit off of human suffering, but yet here we go. Uh, what else are they talking about? Forces aligned against... Let's see, I made a bunch of notes here. Let's see, 113.50, okay. This one, I think they're talking about um, the forces aligned against ivermectin. And if the government was following rules as they set them, that the vaccines would be gone already. And they would have to be revoked now and for very good reason. Yep. Right. So if the rules that they laid out were enforced, right. I, and I, rules, I definitely have to remember to say that because you're right. It would not necessarily happen. Right. So the rules, just so the uh, listeners can follow along, the rules say that you can't grant this unusual authorization because of the hazard that it carries with it if there is a safe and effective treatment available. There you right. go. So if there's... If there are two things that the iver ivermectin treatment appears to be, it's safe and effective, right? Not only safe and effective, but a prophylactic, right? So yeah. <clears throat> it does a job that the vaccines do, right? So there is no basis to grant the, the, the emergency use authorization. And I would also point out, as long as we're here, that there is something so bizarre about the fact that the challenge to ivermectin is not that it is a terrible drug. It is that the evidence for it is not strong enough right now that's the what they claim that's so there you go um emergency use authorization 
if ivermectin was actually embraced, would be revoked. So you've had you would have billions of dollars. I mean, forget about the taxpayer money that's going to be wasted. How many people are they letting die every single day? You know, they they made a big deal out of all of this, but how many people are they willing to let die because they want to keep a, a cheap medication out of people's hands? Uh, let's see. I can't even read my own notes now, but they talk about two facts that deal with COVID. Let me just see what the heck it is because I don't remember. Of types of immunity. Yep. And I will also say there are two facts about the way we deal with COVID. This is that to Dr. Me Weinstein again. stand out like a sore thumb. They tell me that this is not about good medical advice, right? Okay. That something is about something more important <clears throat> than good medical advice. One of them is that we uh, are insisting that people who have had COVID get the vaccine, right? Now, to me, I'm focused on the fact that I know very well we cannot know anything about the long-term consequences, and I know that the human immune system is a complex one and that interfacing with it potentially has consequences that will surprise us and that we will not know for decades what the effect of this thing is and that these technologies Agreed. have only existed for less than a year. So we cannot possibly imagine ourselves experts in terms of the long-term impact of these vaccines. So no, you know, they're, they're not saying that the vaccines don't work. They're just saying that they're unproven, that they're experimental, which is a fact. That's what they are. So, you know, they are very careful to say that, well, it does seem like the vaccines do work. They just don't know what the long-term effects of a new vaccine technology is. Now, here they talk about uh, the vaccines and ivermectin, and uh, they talk about the uh, variants. Okay, so let me unpack that a little bit. Um, There's highly technical stuff. So you have vaccines. All of the vaccines that are currently being used are narrowly focused on the spike protein. Yep. So you've got a virus that has many proteins. You've got the spike protein as the most conspicuous target, and all of the vaccines are narrowly focused on it. And this is actually unusual for vaccines. Right? This I and didn't know before. Past vaccines have dealt with much larger right. fractions of the virus. Right. So, you know, Prior to the mRNA, and I guess even with the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, which are not the mRNA-type technology vaccines, they're all targeting a specific, that, that stupid ball uh, coronavirus spike protein that we all see, have seen the picture of. So they are, are targeting that specific thing. And in prior uh, vaccines, vaccines actually use a dead version of the virus uh, not, not what encapsulates the virus, as far as I understand it. So this is what they're going into. This is part of how we got here so quickly to a vaccine that works. But what this means is that we are creating a very concentrated evolutionary um, pressure, right? That to the extent that the virus can adapt and become invisible to an immune system that has been primed with the spike protein, there is a selective advantage to those mutants. So we get escape mutants, right? So it works, yeah. Now, you could imagine, and in fact, I wondered whether or not ivermectin was going to suffer the same fate, that effectively we were going to get resistance, escape, yeah. right? Because like an antibiotic, it is having some sort of action, and to the extent that there are variants that aren't susceptible, they have an advantage. But what you're telling me yep. is that 
actually, I rem empirically speaking, if nothing else, whether we know the mechanism or not, empirically speaking, the variants do not appear to escape ivermectin. Yeah. They do appear to escape How about vaccines. that? You know what, Brett? I get How to use... How about that? You know, what they always use. There's no evidence. <laughs> There's insufficient evidence to show that the, that ivermectin doesn't work against the variants. I mean, in fact, it shows that it does work against the, the variants. And so, I'm, I'm, I, you know, that's a very common question we get. And we had, you know, we had concerns. We didn't have the data, but from everything that we see, it works. In India, that the very, in India. Here's the story. In, about this. this is a story in India, where India had their outbreak. And uh, I think what he's going to talk about here, if I remember right, is that a certain region of India decided not to go with ivermectin. They decided to go with remdesivir. And as a result, they had a huge outbreak where the other regions that decided to go with ivermectin did not. The states in India are absolutely decimating it. So it's working against the Indian variant. The, the one question that we're debating, that I debate with Paul, well, maybe, is, maybe that wasn't and, it. And what we're hearing from other doctors is that, but and also from the trials, is, video, is that the dose is really important. So we're thinking that with some of the variants, you need higher doses or longer durations. Now, the reason that, that ivermectin works against the variants is because ivermectin is, is uh, attacking the virus. It's an antiviral. It's not... Uh, trying to mimic the, pro the spike protein and producing antibodies based on that protein. Um, and so that's the only question, but the, the efficacy is still there. It just, we think that you need higher doses. And really, the efficacy of ivermectin, like almost any other medicine in an acute illness, it's about timing. Yep. You can probably get away with lower doses and short durations if you take it upon first. And going back to my cupboard yep. analogy where I want everything. So there you go. First first symptoms is what he's talking about. If, if they just went along with that, um, and, it, and, it, and as a matter of fact, he says somewhere in this interview, Dr. Corey does, that what he wished would have happened was just a, a giant rollout of ivermectin where they're giving people uh, preventive doses. So you could take it uh, once, I think it was once a week. I think that was the treatment. Pro they have a, a treatment protocol on their website. And I think for prevention, it called for ivermectin, vitamin D3, vitamin C, I think zinc and some other ones. But I, I've got a link to it on my website. And uh, their their protocols, I think, called for ivermectin once a week and in low doses, and that would be enough to prevent. And as a matter of fact, that's what he says he does. He says he's not vaccinated because he doesn't need to be. He he takes his protocol that they've developed at, um, with his organization of ivermectin. Uh, so now here, I think, uh, here they talk about uh, the, what COVID really is and that once you're in the hospital— you're generally not shedding virus, that it's a certain type of pneumonia. It's not a viral pneumonia, I think he says. I think he says it's an organizing pneumonia, and there are ways to treat it, and that uh, already when you're in the hospital, you are no longer shedding virus. So steroids doesn't work. I, I've now published 10 papers on COVID. The one that I think is the most impactful, well, ivermectin is probably pretty huge, but I, you know, myself and one of the top chest radiologists in the country, if not the world, we wrote a paper saying that this disease is actually not a viral pneumonia. It's an organizing pneumonia. The mainstay of, of therapy for organizing pneumonias, which is a non-infectious pneumonia, is corticosteroids. And in fulminant cases, we know over the decades in treating, you need high-dose steroids. 
nobody's paying attention. They're still treating this with this little anemic dose. It's well, bizarre. And the obvious thing to do, right? Were I a clinician, and you tell me if I misunderstand what doctoring is about, but were I a clinician, I would be tempted, right, to the extent that there is some dose that I'm told is the right one. I would be tempted to see what happens a little higher, a little lower. Oh, the higher works. Oh, a little higher, a little, right? You would find whatever dose worked best at the point that you just nudged it a bit, right? Yes. So the idea that there's some god-given dose is absurd the god-given dose is what was tested in the trial and that's why that's where i find randomized controlled trials it's another reason why they're very unsatisfying because they tested one, one protocol thing, right it doesn't mean that's the only one ah. but the world is taking as that's how you treat covid that is maddening it, it and you know m most of this conversation is like this they just you know i get the feeling when you watch them they understand why it's happening. They just can't say why it's happening, you know. Which I, I you know, I guess the, they've got a lot to lose by, uh, you know, burning bridges, naming names. You know, I think they're doing the best that they can uh, under the circumstances. But you know, the powers that be are strong, and they're voicing their opinions, but they're unable to really come out and say it. And here they say they 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 do go into some of it, and they go into. Uh, our response to ivermectin in the United States and uh, the corruption and the media and the authoritarian the authoritarianism. Sorry. Okay, so I want to put this in a slightly different context. I, I find that as maddening as you do. Yeah. But I also find it maddening. We botched. We Americans botched the COVID crisis early on. Okay. Yeah. Many people died who didn't need to because of the way we react. Clearly. We're doing it again, right? Why should we be lagging the world in the understanding of the utility of this drug, right? Why would we allow that to happen to ourselves? This is absolutely unpatriotic. It's, and it has yeah, to yeah. do, I think, with the fact that the corruption that we have is in many ways more pronounced. It is more, uh, it is more effective it is more deeply entrenched, and it has access to more tools here than elsewhere. This is about as as finger-pointing as I think they're able to get. Right. I agree. And so somehow we Americans have to recognize that this story, as crazy as it is, is actually telling us something about an entirely different disease that has to do with the authoritarian control over thought about what is true and that that manifests here in a medical context that is absolutely ghastly. They but can't that believe is not that they're being told to nature. shut up. Its fundamental nature is about controlling what people think for purposes that have something to do with profit. And, and it's that control of why, you know, going back to your question, right? You, you can see sort of the pain on Dr. Corey's face when he starts to get into this, that, you know, it's a subject that they have to talk about, but he really didn't, he, he wishes, he didn't have to, and he wishes it wasn't true. The U.S., you just can't get anyone to talk about ivermectin credibly. So if you look at the big media outlets, so like I'm waiting, you know, the Washington Post did a story, but anytime, <clears throat> so there's been very few credible mentions. So I did an interview with the Washington Post, and I knew what the article was going to say before I did. I knew it was going to be a he said, she said, mm -hmm. meaning every time they do it, they say Dr. Corey and his group says this, the NIH says that, and you're left with the NIH thinks it's, you know, it's nice that these doctors think it works, but the NIH doesn't, so you're left. It's, it's, 
it doesn't lead you to anywhere good, these it articles. Is, it is designed to leave you without a conclusion. Unbelievable. <laughs> uh, you know, and the funny part is they go on to talk about pol politics a little bit and how um, conservative media outlets really are the only ones that want to hear what they have to say, you know, obviously for their own political advantage. But they also point out to themselves or to the audience here that they themselves are liberals and that they can't believe that liberal outlets don't want to cover them. Which is, you know, they should be going through a little bit of a political awakening here. And maybe they're backing the wrong political party. Clearly. Right. Which then or the justifies... conclusion is everyone who trusts the agencies know if it was working, the gods of science knowledge would say it to these, these rabid doctors. When you refer to the gods of science, what the hell did he just say? The gods of science and whatever. Um, he's talking about the government agencies. The WHO, the uh, CDC, the NIH. They're just, yeah. they're a little overexcited. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the fact is we're not getting, there's there's not a discussion around ivermectin in major or mass media. The only times I get invited to do it, it tends to be uh, right-wing or conservative media because I think they're more naturally aligned to question government. And so that's the only places I, I can get a voice. No, like, major central or liberal-leaning uh, outlets want to talk to us well, or give us a yeah. credible No mainstream. Review. Mainstream, I mean, that's what I meant. You're, you're sitting here uh, at the table of liberals, right? Yeah. But heterodox liberals. Yeah. Liberals. Right? It is the orthodox liberalism that is finding yes. this impossible to swallow. And unfortunately, for reasons I cannot explain... That uh, mainstream pseudo leftism in the U.S. has become aligned with all these gargantuan powers that it traditionally would have been opposed to, because they are authoritarian authoritarianisms. <laughs> Author uh, authoritarians. <laughs> I crack myself when I can't say the words. Uh, these aren't people that are interested in classical liberalism in uh freedom of thought freedom of uh you know the individual to take actions to protect themselves no these people are all about telling you what you need to do and when you need to do it they don't give it they don't give a rat's ass about your freedom uh here now they are talking a bit about uh, risk reduction of vaccines with ivermectin. It may be absolutely central to this because you can't have ivermectin anywhere in the picture or the it's analysis becomes critical clear. that ivermectin not be entered into that equation. Yeah. If you put ivermectin as a variable in that equation, you do not come out to a conclusion that the world should get rolled over with vaccines. I mean, you, you right. can't, that's not what the equation would show you. You, you the don't. The calculation, no. You don't. And, and I agree with that. And yeah. so what that means, and you know, let, let's be as generous as possible here. Were you a pharmaceutical exec, right? And you've invested, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars in the generation of these vaccines at a time when ivermectin was not understood to be effective yeah. right and then ivermectin comes out of nowhere it's not under patent right so it can be made cheaply it is being made all over the world already yeah. right it's safe and effective so 
the point is, okay, that's a nasty surprise because you may have invested money that you can't recoup because there's no justification for exposing people to the hazard. Some bets work out, some don't. Some right? bets work out, some don't, and I would really hope that the pharmaceutical industry would understand that this was just take the cost the loss. they paid. Well, you know. Nobody's willing to take that loss. Nobody, not anymore. You got nobody on your side. Government is all against you. Nope. You know, this thing, this this interview occurred earlier in the week, and the only people that are talking about it are people like me or other uh, podcasts that, that uh, concentrate on COVID or, you know, skeptics, conspiracy theorists, all that kind of crap. Uh, let's see here. This one, they're talking about... Uh, the lab leak connection in that story. I'm going to flag one thing. I don't think there's very far we can take it. But I do. I've been watching. I, they I've talk about how odd COVID from the, beginning. the COVID disease, the viruses. It is and how promiscuous it is in terms of creating symptoms, which is yeah. um, conspicuous evolutionarily because in general you would expect a pathogen to effectively be uh, to limit itself to infecting tissues that actually advanced its cause. Right. And to leave you in, you know, it's one thing if it's if if it's malaria. Malaria wants you uh, incapacitated yep. so that mosquitoes can bite you. But a disease that is transmitted by people to other people doesn't want you incapacitated. That means that um, when you catch COVID, you know, a virus is a living thing and it wants to spread. So the worst thing it can do is get into a host and kill the host because once it kills the host, it can no longer spread. And I read an article about this. And I, I tried to find it later on, but everything's so Google-bombed by COVID this and COVID that I couldn't find it again. Um, when you have a serious virus like SARS-CoV-2 and, it, and it's highly transmissible and it gets into people's uh, systems, the people who are most vulnerable and that die from the virus, they can no longer spread it. But it's everybody else who can tolerate it spreads it. And each time it spreads by the people who can tolerate it, the virus, uh, those versions of the virus are weaker and weaker. So the, the more virulent it gets, the weaker the virus actually is. So these variants that they keep coming up with, um, if they're naturally occurring variants, they should be weaker by nature because it wants to spread. And if it wants to spread, it will not kill the host. It wants you to spread. Yeah. Right. And so the number of different tissues and the amount of damage that this thing does is a little bit incoherent, which could be the result of the fact that it behaves. Where it came from. <laughs> ah, this is what I think, is that the yeah. laboratory environment could well have generated a very unusual set of you symptoms. The lab leak the theory. that goes on in these serial passage experiments is going to exert... Uh, weird effects, right? You're selecting for things about the laboratory environment that aren't really about, uh, you know, pathogenicity in, in the outside world. So anyway. I did blog a story um, that a New York Times science writer uh, wrote on Medium that talks about this and about the peculiar parts of the virus that appear to only be lab-created, that um, only, only appeared in other viruses created in the lab they were never it was never found in the wild in nature he, he he does say that it's not it doesn't mean that it can't happen but the likelihood of it happening uh was small especially since it's never been seen before uh now i think that's all i'm going to cover from these guys it's 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 extensive it's two and a half hours this is near the end of their 
of their interview anyway. Um, but I, I've linked the full video that's still up on YouTube, which is kind of amazing. Um, and I think everybody should really go listen to it. it it's kind of, it's long. You know, um, I didn't find it boring. Some people found it boring, but I found it enlightening. Uh, and, I, you know, I wish I wish it would get uh, a wider view. Okay, now again, let's see, that's, I've run out of topics. That's everything. I've been talking too long anyway. I've been talking for an hour and 16 minutes. So, um, again, you can throw me a few bucks. There's a, a donate button on my website, kevinbay.com. You can um, buy one of my fancy shirts. Um, I, I also have, I, I made these these masks. Uh, they were a joke. Uh, using uh, 2020 and 2021 and where the twos are toilet paper because of the toilet paper apocalypse or the potty paper apocalypse as I like to call it. Uh, the twos are toilet paper and the zeros are the coronavirus. Now, for And that's for 2020. For 2021, the number one is a beautiful syringe uh, representing the vaccines, our illustrious vaccines. So those are also in the same store, and, and you can make a t-shirt out of those, you can make a mask out of those, you can make whatever you want. Uh, so if you like any of those, go ahead and buy them, because then I get a few bucks, and that will help my bottom line. Uh, let's see, that's it. Uh, so uh, um, this is a podcasting 2.0 compatible podcast. I say that as if I know what I'm doing, but I, I do the best that I can. Um, and that means that uh, if you are listening to this podcast on a podcasting 2.0 compatible app, you will see transcripts and um, chapters and chapter images as I as I put them. Again, uh, chapters and chapter images appear much later because I have to take the transcript and make chapters. Uh, but the transcript should generally be up um, by the next day. Uh, if you are so inclined or need to search through through that for, for things that I talked about. I, all of these stories will be uh, on one single blog post as part of the show notes. And uh, I guess for today, this week, that's all I got. Let's see what bugs me next week. Oh, you know what? Um, I'm going blueberry picking tomorrow. So uh, I get to think about nothing but picking blueberries, which will be a first. So... Uh, I don't even know why I tried to, <laughs> why I decided to include that. I, I guess it was just something else that I had going on that I felt like, hey, I'll just throw that in there. Whatever. Anyway, that's all I got. Until next week. Such a smoothly produced podcast, don't you think? I don't know what I'm trying to emulate. Enjoy the rest of the weekend.